This morning's reading is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, on page 968. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and fal falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we all know about the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. They were written on two tablets of stone. On one tablet it lists our duties to God, and the other our duty to our fellow human beings. Uh, they are a pretty tall order. I mean, if you just confine them to outward actions, then I don't suppose most of us have committed murder. But um, when, as Jesus does, you internalise them and you realise it's about attitudes more even than actions, then, of course, they're a challenge. Attitudes to parents attitudes to the opposite sex, attitudes to other people, attitudes in our character evaluation. <laughs> the New Testament also has a similar challenging list. It is this one, the eight Beatitudes. Again, there are two lists, one, the first four, about our attitude to God, and the other about our duties towards other human beings. Now, of course, there is one massive, great big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament Ten Commandments were given so that we might realise that we cannot live up to God's standards. We're born in a default situation where uh, we ain't going to be able to do it. And so we have to look for a way in which God has enabled us to be put right with him. Whereas the eight Beatitudes are given as a consequential character list of traits that those who realising that they could not achieve a rightness with God through their own efforts, because of their own sin, have come to the conclusion, I'm in the wrong, I need an about turn, I need to repent, to receive from Christ both forgiveness of sins which deals with the past, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which enables believers to express the character traits here described in the Beatitudes. 
both uh, the reformers of the 16th century and the Puritans of the 17th century used to summarize it like this. The law sends us to Christ to be justified, that's declared right with God, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified, made holy, and be like him. Now, not that these character traits are automatic. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ living within us over time, um, does energize and enable us, but it, he does require our active cooperation for these character traits to be cultivated, to be realized in our lives. So it is a challenge, a lifelong challenge. It's a bit like exams, really. God gives you intelligence, but you have to acquire knowledge so that you can display your intelligence. It's no good having the highest IQ in the world. One member tells me his is 168, uh, which is high, very high. It's no good having that kind of IQ if you're doing a history exam on the 17th century Europe and you've never read a book on it, you will not be able to display it. You need knowledge to display your intelligence. In life, we have the Holy Spirit, but we have to cooperate with him in cultivating these fruits of the Spirit, which is another way of, of um, saying what the Beatitudes are saying. And these blessings that we've read about can be tasted now. And they are the most satisfying way to live, to live as God intended. But the full reward is in the life to come. So we read, Jesus sat down. Now when rabbis of the first century wanted to say something of significance or importance, they would sit down. Those of you who've been to university will know that your professors occupied what they called a chair in their subject. And that apparently goes back to the days when they had the chair and the students sat on the floor. Whereas, of course, now students have nice luxury bench seating all upholstered for them to kind of doze off on. A bit like you in church, we are up to date. Now, having sat down, he then, we read verse 2, opened his mouth. In the original, something of the solemnity of the occasion is conveyed. We might say he opened his heart to them. You know, he shared what was really important. You see, for Jesus, what our inner attitudes and motivations are, they are what is of most importance. It's very important to use our God-given talent to the full for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. But we'll only do that if we have our attitude, our disposition right. McShane, who was a pastor in Dundee in the 19th century, said, it is not great abilities that God uses, but great likeness to Jesus. Now, you needn't set off one against the other. We needn't set off abilities against attitude. If you have the right attitude, you can have great ability. But if you have great ability with the wrong attitude, Jesus will not be impressed. Your potential to do wrong is even greater. So it doesn't matter 
what, how clever you are, doesn't matter how good looking you are, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, the most important thing is your attitude. So let's have a look at what they should be. And the first four are about our attitude to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now originally, in the Old Testament, poor meant to be literally poor, to be in material need. But gradually, over time, because the needy, you know, the widow, the orphan, the alien, they had no refuge but God. They depended on God to meet their needs. The word came to have spiritual overtones and to be identified with humble dependence on God. So the psalm writer designated himself as this poor man who cried out to God in his need and he wrote, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. So to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, in fact our spiritual bankruptcy before God. We can't buy our way out of our default inherited position. For we are sinners under God's holy wrath and deserving nothing but the judgment of God. We have nothing to offer, nothing to plead, nothing with which to buy our favour of heaven. Top lady in that 18th century hymn has a verse, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. So right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations about the expected kingdom of God's arrival. The kingdom, as far as Jesus is concerned, is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to those humble like little children, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own prowess. So in our Lord's day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom, who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that even in their prayers they thanked God for how wonderful they were. Nor was it to the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword. Those categories, some of them, a minority, did come to faith in Christ, just to demonstrate Christ's diversity. But in his day, it was more likely that Roman collaborators, guilty of ripping off their own people for their own ends as they served the Roman cause, or prostitutes who were the rejects of their society, who knew they were so poor that they could offer nothing, can achieve nothing. All they could do would, was to cry out to God for mercy. It was those categories of people who Jesus particularly heard their cry and welcomed them into his presence. Their attitude enabled them, Jesus says, to have the kingdom of heaven, the rule of Christ over their life, now and forever. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, mourn means to be sad at the death of someone that you love. It can also mean mourning over the mess that a loved one has got themselves into in their prodigal phase of life. But here it is mourning our spiritual poverty. But it's more than just confessing with our lips. It is that our inner disposition should be contrite. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians uh, 7 verse 10, has this observation. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, it's very natural for somebody to feel sorry for the mess that they've got themselves into. It is likely, very likely, to have adverse consequences. But they would still be heading towards death, eternal separation from God, unless they recognise that it is fundamentally <coughs> that God they have wronged. That recognition means that everlasting good can come out of their folly. That is comfort from the comforter. Assurance of forgiveness and a fresh start with a future to look forward to. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now if you kind of associate meekness with weakness, just because it rhymes, you'd be well adrift. Meekness is strength under control. The sort of word that you would use of breaking in a wild stallion so that its strength can be directed and mastered. Moses in the Old Testament was said to be very meek, more than all men that were on the face of the earth. Numbers 12 verse 3. Now you'd hardly say that Moses was weak. I mean, the way he stood up to Pharaoh, who had kind of absolute power, on a ten or more occasions, demonstrates that he was a brave, courageous, strong character. And later, when in the wilderness, the rebellious and ungrateful children of Israel, you know, did their own thing, he was also strong with them, although, of course, he was widely wildly outnumbered. And that's why, of course, in the film, The Ten Commandments, they have to get Charlton Heston to play Moses. Strength under control. Under the control of God. Meekness is essentially having a true view of ourselves before God. And that attitude means, we read, that we will inherit the earth. Because, we have, because if we have the right attitude towards God, then we have everything. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst are words which we in the West really don't understand. It's not our fault. We have never been either of those things, most of us. The person who is really hungry or really thirsty is so desperate that everything else is excluded from their desires. William Barclay, 
describes the thirst of a person in the Judean desert like this. A man might be on a journey, and in the midst of it, the hot wind which brought the sandstorm might begin to blow. There's nothing for him to do but to wrap his head in his burnous, which is a kind of top-to-toe kind of hoodie, really. Put it up and stand there with his back to the wind and wait while the swirling sand fills his nostrils and his throat until he was likely to suffocate and until he was parched with an imperious thirst. In conditions of modern Western life, he says, there is no parallel at all to that. If you get to be as desperate as that, then satisfying your thirst or your hunger becomes an all-consuming passion. You think of nothing else. It is your overwhelming desire. And Jesus says that is the attitude that we are to have towards righteousness. We should long to maintain our right relationship with him and to see his righteousness displayed in society. It's a 24-7 life with God, always conscious of his presence, always wanting to do the right thing. With that attitude, he promises to fill us with his presence. Now looking back, we can see that the first four Beatitudes reveal a spiritual progress. Each step leads to the next and presupposes the one that has gone before. To begin with, we are to be poor in spirit, acknowledging our complete and utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. Next, we are to mourn over the cause of it, our sins, yes, and our sin too, the corruption of our fallen nature and the reign of sin and death in our world. And thirdly, we are to be meek, humble and gentle towards others, allowing our spiritual poverty, admitted and lamented, con to condition our behaviour to them as well as to God. And fourthly, we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. For what's the use of confessing and lamenting our sin and acknowledging the truth about ourselves to both God and men if we leave it there? Confession of sin must lead to hunger for righteousness. In the second half of the Beatitudes, the last four, we seem to turn from our attitude to God to our attitude to our fellow human beings. Certainly the merciful show mercy to men and the peacemakers seek to reconcile men to each other and those who are persecuted are persecuted by men. And it seems likely, therefore, that the sincerity denoted by being pure in heart also concerns our attitude and relationship to other human beings. So we read, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now mercy is used in two ways, and both are applicable here. We are to be merciful to those in need, like the victim in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are to have a particular concern for those around us who are the weaker members of society, the incapacitated, the outcasts, the unpopular, the sick in body or mind, and the lonely, 
and to have mercy on them. And of course, our mercy will lead to practical help. And secondly, we are to be merciful to those who have wronged us, even where justice cries out for their punishment. We learn that from Jesus, he's forgiven us when we didn't deserve it, so naturally we should be prepared to forgive others who have wronged us. It's again evidence that our faith is genuine. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you want to know what God first looks at in a person, it's this, the inner motivation. He is, as Jesus said, more concerned with the inward and the moral than the outward and the ritual. He wants to see it pure, unadulterated, like the pure water that flows as it melts out of the mouth of a mountain glacier. Pure to God, but correspondingly also sincere towards other people. So if we change the analogy from beautiful, clear, refreshing water to computing, I'd ask you, are you a WYSIWYG? You know, a W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G, which stands for what you see is what you get. Are you that kind of person, in a positive sense? Is what people see in you, is what God sees in you? that you don't put up any kind of phony front, no masks, no affected behaviour, just totally open, transparent. One thing I like about ordinary people is that they're often straightforward. One thing I really dislike is the smarmy sophisticate, particularly if they happen to have an inflated ego. You never know where they're coming from. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The sequence of thought is from purity of heart to peacemaking. Um, it's a natural sequence, because one of the most frequent causes of conflict is intrigue, while openness and sincerity are essential to all true reconciliation. And we are to be peacemakers, encouraging people to make their peace with God. to be at peace with themselves and then to move on to be at peace with others as far as it lies within you to be. Sometimes expressing Christian views in the public domain can provoke a bellicose reaction. Richard Dawkins is not too nice with his comments about Christianity or Christians. He says we should devote as much time to studying serious theology as we devote to studying serious fairies and serious unicorns. But we, in return, should not be belligerent. We should try and be at peace with people. Similarly, just as God could not forgive us without the death of his Son and without our repentance, so we can't forgive people who don't repent of their sin done to us. We shouldn't be bitter and resentful towards them, and we should be prepared to forgive them, but we can't forgive them until they ask for it. But we can understand, perhaps, what's going on inside their head, 
They are fighting, aren't they? They are fighting God through us. God is about bringing peace out of discord. If we're also engaged in that, then we take on the family characteristic. And hence, Jesus says, we are the sons of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You might think being merciful to others, being genuine towards others, trying to bring about reconciliation, would win you universal respect. If you're any good as a Christian, then you may be an unwelcome reminder to others of what they should be like. And you create a battle in their head. One part of them, their conscience, recognises the truth of the message and the genuineness of you, the messenger. But the old self in their head doesn't want to change. It doesn't want to surrender its autonomy. It wants to do what it wants. It does not want to give in to God. So how do you handle that? Well, most of you have been there. And the easiest tactic to adopt, if you don't like the message, you shoot the messenger. You give them a hard time so that they're intimidated into silence and you don't have to listen to it anymore. But the fact that most of us are here means that God still in our conscience worked on the information we had and we did eventually surrender to him. But we have to be prepared for that. We don't go looking for it. But should we get a dose of it, we don't take it personally, unless we deserve it for having a very low emotional IQ and basically being irritating and obnoxious. No, we should rise above it. We know what's going on inside their head, and that's why it's being played out on us. But it isn't personal. Finally, rejoice and be glad. You see living the way of the Beatitudes is made much easier because we have promised rewards. Rewards for the future and rewards for the present. Great is your reward in heaven, verse 12, or in verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a future reward, eternity with Christ. But there's also a present one where he mentions because of me, the reward of identifying with Jesus and going through in some very, very small measure what he went through. And to be involved in his cause and so be involved with him. It is a sign that our faith is genuine since our forefathers in the faith, the prophets, got a similar response, Jesus says. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. And let us use our time of prayer just to reflect and to check out how we are doing in the light of these Beatitudes.
What is our honest default disposition towards God our Father? Is it one of God have mercy? Do we possess godly sorrow or just remorse for our sins? Do we submit to God and know the strength that comes from that? Are we driven to a righteous life? Do we remember how God has treated us so that we can be merciful and not self-righteous towards others? Are we genuine? Are we a blessing to others, infusing peace? And do we accept a bit of aggro occasionally as par for the course in sharing our lives and our faith? but with the knowledge that we're spurred on to our reward both now and in heaven. Amen.